0: Hi, this is Tamsen Granger.
1: This is Dan Abuhoff. With
0: Tamsen and Dan, read the paper once again. It's Sunday, February 24th, 2019,
1: Oscar night. Yes, Oscar night, Oscar night. But
0: you know, I'm
1: not up for it. I'm, uh, I'm not up
0: for it either. I and all right, so we don't even have to talk about it. Right?
1: Well, we we have to make trenchant observations. That's the business we're in. Well,
0: Dixon wants you to pick the winner.
1: Uh, I'll pick the winner at the end of the broadcast, but the, at the
0: end of the broadcast, you got to
1: keep your audience some way. You're but, a tough guy, yeah. But here's here's the thing, okay? Uh, to me, I'm less interested. Um, I don't think the movies very good this year,
0: right?
1: And uh, you know, let me tell you why, okay?
0: Well, first, tell me what the movies are. Okay.
1: So, the movies nominated for Best Picture are Bohemian Rhapsody, Black Panther, The Favorite, Black Klansman, Roma, A Star is Born, Vice, and Green Book. Okay. Now, okay, uh, we saw a lot of those. And not that they were terrible, but a superior picture? No, we didn't see every one, but even so. Let me just give you point of comparison.
0: Black Panther was a lot of fun.
1: Black Panther was a lot of fun, but it's a Marvel movie. you know. So it's
0: not a real movie?
1: No. I, to me, it's the second or third best picture in that group.
0: It's not art.
1: Well, that's true, too. But, but look, let me just, without getting too deeply into it, I'm going to give you the nominees last year. Okay? And tell you what I mean. All right? In terms of this being a superior group. Last year, the nominees were Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, that's the Churchill movie, Dunkirk, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, Get Out, The Post, Three Billboards in Ebbing, Minnesota, and The Shape of Water. Boy. You could argue, <laughs> I, I, and I'm not going to have that argument with you now, that every single one of those movies uh, is better than every single one of the nominees here.
0: Yeah, I think you could argue that. And that's but, stunning. Uh, all right, um- Something tells me you have a theory. Uh, no, well, you know, this is.
1: it's all economics, right? Always is. But look, I don't know. Exactly. I can't put my finger on it. And maybe one year versus uh, another is not uh, that scientific. It's a little anecdotal. But look, the economics are changing. We were talking about that earlier. You were talking about an article that you read about how much more money is being put into streaming services. And I think you even said something about movies being used to promote streaming services.
0: Yeah, that's the way uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, says that the bigger companies are, is D- Disney yeah. uh, and, uh, uh, what is it, Warner Brothers?
1: I don't know, but Disney's yeah, a good uh, example. But
0: anyway, it, uh, are beginning to see the release in theaters as largely promotion right. for the streaming aspect. Of uh, what they're producing. So that's kind of interesting because, uh, of course, uh, for years they were poo-pooing. The streaming aspect is something you eventually get to. Right. Um,
1: Well, you see it now. Of course, Roma is a streaming movie. It's not really a, a movie movie. But you also see it in, in that in that Disney pull is pulling its stuff out of Netflix, so it promotes its own streaming business. It's consistent with what you're saying.
0: Yeah, and supposedly it's it's their top priority developing that.
1: Right, that's so, where the money is. Yeah. So maybe you're not going to see the top great movies every year. And you know, it, it, it's funny. We, I was looking. There's an obituary this week. Stanley Donn died, and Stanley Donnan was a director, uh, died at the age of 94. Okay. Uh, you don't know the name Stanley Don, and Possibly. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know.
0: I totally don't.
1: Okay. Let me just give you a list of movies that he directed. Just a few, okay? Royal Wedding with Fred Astaire, Singing in the Rain, the seminal musical with uh, Gene Kelly, right? Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Sadie's favorite movie of all time. Uh, Funny Face, Willardie Hepburn and Fred Astaire. Damn Yankees, of course, the musical, but also some non-musicals, namely Charade. If you recall that movie um, with uh, Cary Grant, Bedazzled, uh, Two for the Road with uh, Audrey Hepburn and Albert Finney. Uh, a lot of great movies. Um, one or two of them he co-directed with Gene Kelly, but most, a lot of them he directed by himself. These are top movies. Stanley Donnan, no Academy Awards, never nominated for an Academy Award. Okay. All right? That, So what does that tell you? It tells you how rich the movies were in that environment. I mean, Singing in the Rain. He directed Singing in the Rain. He doesn't get nominated for directing Singing in the Rain. It's 1952, right? It's now considered the best movie music of all time, maybe one of the top 10 pictures of all time. Wins, uh, is only nominated for one Academy Award, uh, Best Supporting Actress, and doesn't win it. It is not nominated for Best Picture. Best Picture that year is American Paris, all right? Another movie musical. But my point is, there's a lot of movies. There are a lot of great movies. In past years, a lot more competition, even for the Academy Awards. These movies don't measure up.
0: But here's the thing yeah. that I don't understand. Yeah. I mean, uh, that is not necessarily a reason for lesser quality. I don't, Even though you have more... Even, even if the distribution yeah. uh, is going to change... Uh, in favor of streaming as opposed to people going to the theater to see it, why would that mean that the product itself is lesser?
1: The ABC Murders, which we streamed, which is a, pronounce it for me, Hercule... Hercule Poirot. Hercule Poirot. There you go.
0: Agatha Christie. I love Based you. Agatha... Say it again. No, I like no, no, what you I'm say. Not it. say it Hercule because... Poirot. Right? <laughs> right? There you go. Uh, so it's from an Agatha Christie story. Right. Okay.
1: And starring John Malkovich. All right. right. A, a beautifully produced um, uh, series. And I'll get back to the details yeah, at, in a second. Three parts. Three parts. Yeah. But I mean, beautifully produced. Uh, it wasn't great, but it was very good. We thought it was worth seeing. We enjoyed it. We binged. We saw we all three episodes. all three
0: episodes at the same time. one night.
1: And of course, John Malkovich is John Malkovich. And John Malkovich is great.
0: He was terrific. I was shocked. I was totally shocked that he could play Hercule. John
1: Malkovich can do anything.
0: Uh, you know, uh, he was... I was really impressed. I thought he
1: was fantastic. And uh, yeah. And uh, so I enjoyed it. You, you enjoyed it too. But I think we both thought... That at times it was a little slow. And I think we both concluded that it's nice that they did it in three different segments for streaming, but it looked like a movie, it could have been a movie, and it could have been 45 minutes shorter. In other words, they made a decision.
0: It it was three hours long. It didn't need to be three hours long. It
1: should have been a movie.
0: uh, But other aspects of it were that uh, it was pretty bloody. Yes, it was. It was... Uh, but yeah. that
1: doesn't disqualify it from being a movie. I well, mean...
0: yeah, but no, but... Uh, Needlessly yeah. so. Uh, yeah.
1: Needlessly so. So, yeah, I, I think that's a fair A criticism. little bit of gratuitous violence yes, there. it was. Maybe
0: to counteract uh, the uh, warm and fuzzy aspect of it being an Agatha Christie novel.
1: Maybe. I, and look, look, what made it interesting, frankly was, uh, he made it interesting, was made interesting, because Poirot was interesting. He was part of the plot in a way he often is not. He wasn't just solving the murder, it was his backstory. And yes. he, was, he was a very principal character. And it's his
0: and idiosyncratic right. characteristics and his weirdnesses and his personality right. that uh, make it a story. Right. Because, you know, there's not much of a story there.
1: But, but my point, again, trying to link it to what we were talking about before Exhibit B, is that kind of thing was a movie years ago. And in, in that kind of product, people talk about the golden age of television, the golden age of streaming. That's what they're talking about. A lot of the product is going to streaming segments as opposed to films. That's a theory. Okay. okay.
0: So let me ask you this. Yeah. Uh, in the realm of Agatha Christie. Yeah. Uh, would you top, what would you put the higher? What, which do you prefer? The remake of Orient Express? Yeah. Or this... Um, ABC Murders. Well,
1: when you say the remake of Orient Express, you mean yeah. the original film of Orient Express that we saw with uh, Albert Finney. And then no. they did a remake. Yeah, well, the we didn't remake. See, we didn't see the remake with we, Kenneth Branagh. Oh, we didn't? No. and we, I read
0: so much about it, I thought I saw
1: no, it. And it wasn't supposed to be good. Yeah. But I think it's a fair question to ask whether we like the original Murder on the Orient Express with Albert Finney, because that was a fun movie. and That was with Sean oh, Connery that. and Vanessa Redgrave. I think, I think that they were comparable. They were comparable. Uh, they were both a lot of fun. Uh, they were different. This was a little more serious, I thought. Uh, but, uh, that was a beautifully produced film also. And that was a, a great cast. Uh, so, um, Wendy Hiller was in that.
0: Yes, I, yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. So in any event, uh, so the point is, first of all, we do recommend the ABC murder. Murders, and... Uh, Even
0: though it gets mediocre reviews.
1: Well, not from us. That's what not matters. Not from us. Not from us. We found it enjoyable. And we're a tough... We co- did co- have to
0: look away occasionally.
1: We, yes, we're tough graders, Uh and we liked it. But also, it's, it, it shows why movies are a little bit different now. Look, we don't have the answer yet, but you can't... It's hard to ignore what's going on. So, something's going on. How's that? Um, all right, so uh, Don Newcomb passed away uh, this week. And you, of course, are going to say, Don Newcomb, who's that? And uh, Don Newcomb was a pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And here's the way I would cut through it, all right? Uh, everyone knows the Jackie Robinson story. Uh, 1947, he came up, broke the color line. But the story really was this. they brought The Dodgers brought up three players in three successive years. And that's what really broke the color line. Robinson in 47, Roy Campanella in 1948, and Don Newcomb in 1949, all right? They were all... Great players. Mm-hmm. You know everything there is to know about uh, Jackie Robinson. Um, Roy Campanella was a better player than Jackie Robinson. Roy Campanella... Catcher. Ro- Catcher. Oh, you do
0: know that. Very good. Well, you, you forget. I went to business school with his son. Oh, I do forget that. So okay. uh, at a certain point many years ago, yeah. I brushed up on my Roy okay. Campanella
1: well, Roy Campanella was a fantastic player, won the MVP award three times, which is remarkable. Uh, and, of course, had that terrible auto accident at the age yeah. of 37 that left him a paraplegic, although he ended his career. His career was probably heading toward an end anyway at that age. And then but he lived to be like 70. Robinson uh, actually died in his 50s. Um, but the third is Don Newcomb. And Don Newcomb just passed away, and he lived to be 92. And Don Newcomb was as good as the other two, in some ways, better. Don Newcomb was a pitcher. And uh, he was the Rookie of the Year when he came up in 1949. He had, he missed two years because he was in the service. He was such an important part of the Dodgers that the manager of the Dodgers at that time, I think it was Charlie Dressen, said uh, he was bemoaning the fact that Newcomb was gone. Someone told him, well, Willie Mays is going to be in the service too, the giant star. He said, I'd rather have Newcomb, let him have Mays. Really? Yeah. And uh, Newcomb came back. And in 1956, Newcomb uh, not only won the Cy Young Award, he was the MVP in the league. At that time, he was the first person ever to have those three awards, Rookie of the Year MVP.
0: And Cy Young. And
1: Cy Young. Uh, He was fantastic. Uh, So why is he not in the Hall of Fame? Why do we not know his name? And the answer is because Don Newcomb was an alcoholic. And uh, his career was cut short. Now, he, he's an admitted alcoholic. I'm not, there's no speculation here. Uh, and he grew up in a household in which his father was giving him a beer when he was eight years old. That was part of the deal. And after every game, you know, all the teams were sponsored by these beer sponsors. And they would have a bucket of beer by Newcomb's Locker after every game. He'd pound about six beers. He'd take a case home. Uh, and then it became hard liquor. And the Dodgers sort of gave up with on him in the late '50s, and he was out of baseball in a year or two. Um, he uh, the story is, and you know, you get stories, but the story is that he um, he sold his uh, World Series ring mm-hmm. and some uh, very expensive watch because uh, he couldn't make ends meet at a certain point. And then, I guess, at the age of forty, his uh, I guess it was his second wife. Sort of one one day he went down to the door, and his, his wife was there at the door of their two kids, and she said, we're leaving if you don't get sober. And he went into a program, and uh, he got sober. Mm-hmm. And uh, the story is that um, the Dodgers called him in, and uh, Peter O'Malley, his career was over by then, but Peter O'Malley, son of Walter O'Malley, was the owner then, and uh, he handed Newcomb an envelope.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Newcomb opens it up. World Series ring. And the watch.
0: Wow, but he's not a household name. No, and uh, they said for that. For you, baseball guys.
1: Right, and then uh, you know the story is that Newcomb sort of wept for thirty minutes, and he worked for the Dodgers the rest of his life. And even now, he's been sort of a mentor to uh, uh, to the Dodger pitchers, even at the age of ninety-two, if you can believe that. But that's what they say. Mm-hmm. So that's his story. It's sort of a it's sort of an interesting story, and it's a fair story. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So you had uh, oh yeah you had these two interesting subjects that A maybe I don't like or not yes right. Go ahead. Uh, well
0: um, let's get to the hard one first yeah and that is this is kind of interesting uh, there's an article in the uh, education section the special section of the New York Times this weekend um, talking about increased enrollment and interest in single sex colleges. And historically black colleges and universities. Um, so that's interesting to me, um, partly because I went to a, a girls' high school. Right. And I pretty much always envisioned going to a women's college. Well, you made that... I was you, just comfortable You didn't with do that, that right. You made a and, mistake. And uh, then uh, under pressure from my family <laughs> and the powers that... Uh, were at school, I applied to princeton, yes, an all boys school, yes, and uh, they had just decided to go co ed yeah and uh I actually I went for an interview at Princeton, and I remember that interview very clearly because I got into a big argument yeah with the interviewer because he started out by saying, you know we've just gone co-ed There's no real reason. Interesting that you're going to a girls' school, but there's no reason for single-sex institutions anymore. And I said, I beg to differ. And I got into this huge argument with him. And I said, you know, the beauty of being in an all-girls' school is you get to be yourself. The girls are the leaders. Mm -hmm. The girls are, you know, the smart ones. The girls are the successful ones. The girls are the athletes. Uh, You know, they get to play all those different roles without being worried about uh, any, um, you know, other sexual tension or connotations or, you know, being shut out uh, Mm. by conventional gender roles. So I always really appreciated that. There's a real sense of, I thought, uh, you know, freedom to be at an all-girls school. And so anyway, so... If you read this article, that's what the women are saying today about going to a women's uh, college. I can can
1: see that. I can see that.
0: I can't really speak about going to a black college, obviously. Um, But that's interesting to me and uh, interesting uh, some of the reasons they state for why they think uh, interest is increasing. In some cases, it's just the quality of the school. Um, And, you know, there, there are... Um, intimations of uh, people are concerned about the climate, the political climate now you feel safer Mm -hmm. uh, in perhaps a a black school or a women's school, etc. But uh, all of these institutions are going through changes because of the economic environment because of the intellectual environment because of the information environment um, and how people learn. Uh, So uh, this is this is going to be, I think, a continue. Yeah, I think
1: I think you should just consider. We're not going to resolve this now. You might have gotten the best of both worlds. I mean, the idea of being yeah an, by
0: going to a girls' high school and exactly. then a boys' college. Right. <laughs> well,
1: well, you got to meet the right kind of boy. But my point <laughs> is that you got both experiences, and I think there's an argument that the points that you make about uh, women's only uh, group um, may even resonate more in high school than in college when you're really developing a personality and finding yourself.
0: That's interesting. and I think that's really possible.
1: Yeah. So, and I can tell you from meeting you as a freshman in Princeton, you were pretty assertive. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you suffered from that. So, yeah. so...
0: But the question is that, was that just innate in my personality or did Hulton yes. Arms yes. help that? Yes, <laughs> yes. Yes, it was. <laughs> but, but that's the thing. I mean, even in high, in high school, yeah. you know, uh, it's not that men stood up for women or men opened doors for women. Uh, Girls opened doors for other girls. Girls stood up out of respect, not out of a gender role. And uh, you learn just certain behaviors without considering Uh, gender. Yeah, Yeah.
1: look, I don't know. Uh, It's hard to break it down, unpack it. I will say, since I did meet you when you were a freshman in college, I never met another girl like you before. How's that? uh, (laughs) Or after. So <laughs> we to... I don't
0: doubt that. Yeah, Speaking right. of uh, meeting people that uh, are not like any other people in the world, a, a writer and editor, Diana Attil, passed away uh, this past week at the age of 101. Oh, man, that's. that's... She was a British writer and editor yeah. and unique. With a capital U. And uh, in fact, she was writing almost to the very end. In fact, a lot of her uh, more popular works had to do with old age and had to do with things like uh, sex in your old age. Uh And yes, she was very open about uh, um, enjoying life, enjoying sex and sexuality uh, in a frank way that uh, was a little bit unusual. Both when she was young and as she grew older, as well, there was uh, she had a very um, interesting life and a full life, even though she never married, never had children. Uh, but uh, she fell in love at an early age, uh, got um, the the functional equivalent of a dear John letter yeah. uh, from her uh, soldier fiance. And uh, you know, never was inclined to consider marriage again, really. Hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, she had a lot of a lot of interesting uh, relationships, including one with a man who ends up committing suicide in her apartment. Yeah, okay. One with a man with whom she lives with for forty years, but only has a physical relationship for about ten years, and uh, actually, at a certain point, uh, invites. His new lover to live with both of them uh, has a um, relationship, an intense relationship with a Black Panther whose subsequent girlfriend is married by other, is murdered by other Black Panthers. So Uh, so she's uh, really had an interesting life, Um, but uh, she um, was... uh, made decisions uh, that were unorthodox, geared to maximize joy, minimize obligation. She wasn't afraid to uh, um, enjoy life. She wasn't a workaholic, uh, and uh, she uh, said she was not ashamed of valuing her private life more highly than her okay. work. I'm going to guess, which was to her mind,
1: yeah. what everybody should do. She must have gone to a girls' school. That's what I'm going to suggest.
0: I don't think she went to school. Oh, is she that was right? Raised by like nannies, is in that right? That, no uh, British upper crust way. Yeah, she would have fit right in and She writes in her yeah. memoirs yeah. about torturing the nannies w- in various ways. Anyway, an interesting essay and in tribute to her uh, by Lena Dunham, you know, who's the right. uh, the writer of um, Girls. Of Girls. Right. And other things. And uh, kind of confronting the idea of what kind of life uh, you should live for yourself. And uh, in this case, how you do that uh, when, you've, uh, when you're not married, not having children, uh, in, a, in a kind of unique and joyful way for yeah. a long, long time. So that's Diana Athill. A uh, lot of interesting... Yeah, there's been a lot of stuff I'd never heard of her and I've run about three writing, articles. Writing, including uh, her memoir, yeah. Somewhere Towards the End, published when she was 91.
1: Well, so it was 10 years before, 11 years before. All right, so that is interesting. So we have, uh, you know, so I talking about reading the paper in the uh, obit section of the journal. Uh, apropos of nothing, they have a story by a woman named Paula Cohen, who's uh, an English professor at Drexel. About and uh, Dean, yes, A. Dean. I don't know, she's they, a big they, shot, she's a big shot at Drexel. Uh, and in she, Philadelphia, she decides to uh teach Arthur Miller, and she makes the point that Arthur Miller's plays were uh basically a sensation in the early 50s, but by the 60s were considered somewhat dated. And you know, it depends on the play, you know. But I, I certainly have uh, you're raising your hand saying that you think they're dated.
0: I think they're dated, okay.
1: okay. Well. Let me give you her the experience that she had when she taught him to her class. She understood that people think they're dated. I, I love Death of a Salesman. You don't like Death of a Salesman. We, we've had this discussion. I don't like it. I hate
0: it.
1: <laughs> you didn't see the right production. you got to see the right production. But in any event, let me get to her experience. So she's teaching a class in English, and she goes through the various plays, and we're not going to go through all of them, but... The play that resonates the most or gets the most interesting reaction from the students is The Price, which happens to be a play that we saw on Broadway a year or two ago. And The Price is a story uh, about, uh, oh, it's a warehouse of furniture, or a guy comes to buy the furniture. Furniture was put together by the patriarch of the family who recently passed away. He was some kind of dealer. Uh, and the story is that the, um, the patriarch who passed away had two sons. And they're both there now looking at the furniture, deciding what to do uh, with the estate, if you will. And uh, one is named uh, Walter and one is named Victor. Victor is a guy who was the dutiful son who paid attention to his father throughout his lifetime. Who helped with the business and never developed much of a career on his own, but always stuck around to. And it wasn't much of a business. And it wasn't much of a business. So you could argue that he didn't have the most fantastic uh, life. Or maybe he really? did or maybe didn't. But in fact, he didn't have a great career. And then you have Walter, who comes by. And he is a uh, huge success. Uh, but he never paid much attention to the father. He went out and struck out on his own and uh, became a big deal. And he's just sort of dropping in. He doesn't care too much about the finances of it or about any aspect of it. But he's touching base uh, who was in with, that production? Uh, the key guy was Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito played the the fellow who comes by to buy the furniture, and he's talking with the two brothers and uh, sort of negotiating and sort of hashing out this relationship. Um, I I will tell you that uh, there is a um, uh, production of it right now going on in the UK, which is getting rave reviews or very good reviews, and by total coincidence. The Danny DeVito part, which is sort of an old Jewish guy negotiating for furniture, is played by David Suchet, who is. Oh,
0: really? And
1: a few for the PBS, if <laughs> a like that, who it turns out is descended from uh, European Jews and uh, doesn't have much trouble playing that kind of a part, even though you think of him as being uh, from Brussels.
0: Well, it wasn't such a reach for Danny DeVito. Well that's true and he's a, Italian. Yeah, yeah that's right. So he's an actor. Uh,
1: you're right and this certainly Suchet is that too. So uh, in any event, but getting back to uh, Ms. Cohen's class, so what happens is when she has the students read the play, she asks the kids in the class uh, you know who thinks that Walter's right and who thinks that Victor's right uh, And it goes about 50 percent, 50 50. And the, uh, the he... so, so she,
0: it's more than that. Doesn't she ask them who identifies with Walter right. and who identifies Same with Walter? I, yes, that's yeah. what I'm getting at. And then so, they have to support... Their, then they have
1: to support it. So the folks who, the kids who are supporting uh, Victor, including prominently, say, two Asian-American students, are saying, well, the Asian-American students, she quotes, explain that devotion to parents is central to their culture. And they think that's the most important thing. Uh, and... Uh, you know, that's, that's what's paramount, and, and, and they think that, that Victor is the one who's worth being admired. The Walters, in contrast, and I'm reading from the article now, were skeptical of the motives behind self-sacrifice. Several of them confessed to having gone against parental wishes to pursue their college careers. They were intolerant of abstract notions of loyalty and saw Victor's sacrifice as a cover for a failure of nerve. And so they have this debate. They don't come to any real conclusion. According to Ms. Cohen, the great thing about it is they each come out of it with a sense of the other side's position, even though they still may feel the way they felt at the beginning. But she says it's a wonderful experience. Uh, They read the whole thing as a cautionary tale, but it teaches them a certain openness to other points of view. And as she concludes, this strikes me as a rationale for studying the humanities. Reading works like Miller's provide a temporary opportunity to escape the blinders of self-interest. Great literature places us at a remove, letting us to appreciate the Victor's, the Walters, and seeing ourselves in both. And it's a small example. It's one classroom, but you can see that. And that, look, if nothing else, Arthur Miller was a great moralist, and he would uh, provoke that sort of discussion. I can see that entirely.
0: But again, it's back to that idea that yeah. it's by looking at yeah. these other time periods, places, works of art, right. and that context, yeah. that we begin to understand ourselves better. Sure. That uh, And uh, that's no small thing. Right.
1: Even Arthur Miller, who's not your favorite. Uh, going to sports, uh, going back to sports, but briefly... The Islanders, that's ah, more about economics than sports. So here's the deal with the Islanders. They're doing better than expected. Looks like they might make the playoffs. But what's really weird is this. They have two different homes, okay? They had trouble with uh, their home in the Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale. They moved to Brooklyn, Barclays. They had trouble there. It's not really good for hockey. They're be in between. They're building a new facility. What are they doing now? They're splitting it.
0: They're playing sometime at the Barclays Center. They have 40 home
1: games. 40 home games, 20 at Barclays in Brooklyn, 20 uh, in Uniondale. Mm -hmm. Okay? And they tend to sell out in Uniondale, but it's smaller. They get 70% attendance in Barclays, uh, but they have the luxury boxes in Barclays. So they get a little bit of each economically. On balance, it doesn't work out great. They have the lowest attendance in the NHL because – they, they bollocked up the whole thing. It seems like it's a disaster. But, but what, what's really going, what they've learned, surprisingly, is it's not as bad as they thought because they have two different fan bases. And why is that? Because there are people with cars and people don't have cars. And the people in cars go to Uniondale and they tailgate. And it's a big thing for them. They want to tailgate. They want to get there. They want to drive. They don't want to get on mass transit. And in Brooklyn, people come from Manhattan. And come from other parts of Brooklyn. And it's a whole different group. And they're drawing a whole different group. So I'm asking, how come this is not a model for somebody else? Can you? Is it impossible as a professional team to draw from two different cities? Can you be... And there have been something like this. Wouldn't the
0: cities have to be close together? Yeah,
1: reasonably close together. But, but, you know, you could be the, I don't know, the uh, Buffalo-Albany blankety-blanks. You can be the... um, Oh, I'm just making this up, but uh, uh, the um, <laughs> how come the, the Detroit-Toronto blankety blanks. I mean, you, you you can put together for a city well, are that's you not really saying
0: that. Are you saying two cities? Or are you saying like a, a city um, venue and a suburban venue?
1: Maybe close enough, but two places that you can draw from because more and more, it's not the live crowd that counts. It's who's following you on media, who's following you in terms of television. It doesn't make any difference if you get 70% or 80% or whatever. It's something. It helps. But if you can develop a fan base that's following you in two different places, you don't have to be in the big city with the high prices and the high real estate values. And you can develop a presence elsewhere that's a broader group that you're drawing from. You can represent the whole state of Nebraska for all I know. I don't know. seems to me people want to think about this. All right,
0: we'll work on that, Daniel. It seems to me you need a little bit of uh, work. All right. Um, I did hear... Uh, uh, on the news, yes, that uh, there was a good hockey game between the Flyers and the Penguins last night. And right. the Flyers won in overtime. Yeah, so I'm happy about that because we're near we're near Philadelphia. Uh, my mother <laughs> comes from Pittsburgh, so right. she was less happy about that. Right, but the shocking news is that uh, you know we are fans of Gritty. Sadie uh, introduced us to the mascot Gritty, yep. and apparently. Gritty caused quite a scandal by running around without his pants on. Really? Uh, yes. During
1: the game? In, uh, at the game? During the game,
0: yes. <laughs> so uh, shocking uh, to see all that orange fur and it- uh, on view. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that's a scandal, Tim. So you know, different teams are doing different things to yes. try to acquire an oh. audience.
1: You can several cities will sign on for that. I can see that.
0: Uh, also, speaking of taking your pants off, yeah. uh, there was a um, article. In the vows section of the New York Times, uh, they call it the vows section. Uh, That's where they talk about weddings. I myself think of it as the meat sheet. Right. Uh, But uh, anyway, there was a, a big article about nudist weddings. And yeah, I'm looking at the pictures
1: now. Detail. Trying to get a
0: grip. Yeah. Well, it, it's a bad picture. Um, pictures are not allowed at most nudist weddings. I don't know how they got away with this. Yeah. Um, but the bride is actually wearing a little something something. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why. Uh, but uh, anyway, a uh, big discussion about uh, various uh, nudist uh, locales, nudist. Uh, um, what would you call it, uh, not camps, that's an old word, but associations, um, and uh, that it can be a good place to have a wedding, yeah. right? Apparently, you spend a lot less money right. on a nudist wedding um, for various reasons. Right. You don't have to buy the expensive gown, and maybe the association has its own venue, um, and of course, uh, and it, there's a whole a nice... Uh, coverage of this wedding between uh, Colleen Gordon and Jack Shea, and uh, they spend a total of $300. On the wedding? On their wedding. Of course, they make it a potluck,
1: Yeah,
0: uh, which helps. Um, but uh, it's uh, interesting. I, you have to be a little bit careful about who you invite and letting them know it's a clothing optional yeah, The attendance optional seemed situation. to be uh, nude, I think. And, of course, you have to find uh, vendors. Right you know, that are comfortable right. with the clothing optional. But, you know, the um, the economics of it are indeed compelling. Yes. And a lot of weddings in our future. Yeah. Um, I'd like to embrace an inexpensive wedding. But in this case, I'm saying don't get any clever ideas, kids. Clothing <laughs> is not optional yeah. for the Abuhoff weddings. Certainly not,
1: not for the parents. Yeah. What matters. Uh, all right. Uh, the interesting piece in the in the journal about Robert Caro, uh, who is the biographer, of course, of LBJ. Before that, uh, Robert Moses, the power broker, was a big book. And uh, it's in a
0: multi. Literally a big book. Yes. He, he writes.
1: Okay. So his deal is he's an a story and he writes these long tomes. They're uh, delivered every three or four years. He won every award under the sun, and he's in the middle of a multi-volume. Uh, treatment for LBJ. So and, this is
0: Robert Caro. Right.
1: And his fans are uh, awaiting the uh, what would be, uh, probably be the last volume in the series to cover LBJ's career, including the Vietnam War. So they're, they're sitting there waiting for him to write this book and release it. And after some years, he did release a book last week, and it's not that book. Instead, it's a book about his method how he goes about and gathers the historical facts that he needs to do the thorough uh, treatments that he thinks are meaningful. Is it a long book? <laughs> uh, it is a long book. But but the, the thing that's disturbing his fans Nobody are... Nobody
0: wants to read about his method. Well, they, no, they I think they they'll read about his...
1: Well, you got it, that. Look, here's the deal. He's 83 years old. Yeah. And his fans are openly concerned that he's not going to live long enough to finish the LBJ series. And they are vocal about it. They want to know how it comes out? Right. Because if you go to Wikipedia. I don't know. They wanted his treatment of it. They need to see that thorough treatment. And uh, so they have been quite vocal saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Because, uh, you know, the math is not working in your favor. you got to finish this. We want to see the finished product, which is a little bit insensitive, if you ask me. But in any event, that's what they're saying. And he's hearing it, and he's saying, I-, I get it. I understand the issue. I thought the last book I just put out, the one about my method, was important, too. That's just me. But in fact, I'm working on the LBJ. I'll do it as best I can. So uh, Get on it, buddy." <laughs> Well, There you go. It's a, a fr- it,
0: What else is he doing?
1: It's on He's, the front page. He's, He's on got work. some
0: time now. He just Get wrote, the work done. He
1: pissed away the last three years on this other book, so they're up in arms.
0: Shocking behavior. Yeah,
1: as in Charles Dickens, right?
0: Yeah, speaking of shocking behavior, so, uh, you know, in the New York Times, it stated uh, that new letters have been found that say not only was Charles Dickens... The great novelist and master journalist stepping out on his wife of many years who had borne him 10 children. That's Not only scary. was he stepping out on her uh, in favor of a young actress, Ellen Turnan, he was endeavoring to have her committed to an asylum. Wow, that's, okay? that's kind And awful. was a little bit pissed off when a friend of his, uh, you know... Uh, Dr. Took actually um, neglects to be helpful in making this happen, and uh, Dickens calls him a variety of names. Interestingly, Dickens knew he was kind of a complex person, okay, so that uh, looking towards his legacy and how people would look at him in the future, he burned pretty much all of his oh, is that right? letters wow. and wow. notes, etc. Okay. Let this be a lesson. I mean, you can't even do that anymore, right? Because everything we write is yeah. out on the internet. Right. Um, so you can't hide. But that was the way people used to solve that problem. Mm. Um, to just get rid of any. Paper trail. Well,
1: I didn't get rid of everything because he's got this.
0: And uh, actually, um, one uh, professor from the University of York says reading the material, these new letters that have been found, written, you know, between other people, uh, not Dickens, it was quite difficult to be honest. Dickens is a literary great who I have studied and admired for many years. But some of the letters have made for, have made for very uncomfortable reading. Mm. Hmm.
1: All right. Well, uh, okay. And finally, uh, uh, one more obituary. A fellow named Theodore Rubin, who's a psychiatrist. Uh, and a psychiatrist who uh, wrote fiction besides based, uh, we like to think loosely, on the actual experience of his patients. Uh, And famously wrote uh, a novel called Lisa and David, which became a movie in 1962 called David and Lisa, which was extremely well known uh, about uh, two sort of uh, uh, emotionally troubled uh, young people, a man and a woman. Uh, And uh, strangely, uh, that became a big sensation. That was a very big movie at the time. It started Kier Delia, who became famous in... Uh, 2001. uh, Later on, as the astronaut, uh, and uh, it was a really big deal. Um, But I just the reason I I wanted to uh, note his obituary is he he's interviewed on a variety of subjects here for the you know that that shows up in the obit. Uh, And his last observation I think is kind of interesting because he was kind of a common sense psychiatrist. And here's the quote. He said the problem for folks is not that there are problems. The problem is expecting otherwise, and thinking that having problems is a problem.
0: True.
1: Yeah, that sounds, that might be right. Sounds like good
0: advice. Yeah, so that's Ted Robin. Better Roman, way to look at 95, life. yes.
1: Uh, all right, so that's uh, that's what we've got. Uh, enjoy the Oscars, which is later tonight. Oh, I have to pick the winner. Right, Dixon so, wants you to pick the winner. All right, so look, I, I, you can't pick the favorite. It looks like Rome is going to win, but I'm going to pick Green Book. And uh, we'll see. We'll see. But I, I can't pick the obvious choice. And, uh, and a lot of people will be unhappy with Green Book. I doubt
0: that it would be Green Book. Uh, look, There's I... There's been a lot of blowback on... Uh, yeah, Book.
1: all right. Well, I, 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 odds are for Roma, but I have a funny feeling about Green Book.
0: Okay. All right, so there you go. All right, you heard it here first. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Papers. See you next week. Thanks.